I want to remind y'all is tomorrow is the uh, Glory Be Girls first meeting. And I was in the wing there. They got it all gussied up. It's all fancy. So if you are a lady, I would encourage you to go to kick it off with a bang and support them see what's going to happen, okay? I don't think there's any more announcements that I can think of, so let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. The option of rebounding if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for another day of Your grace and Your faithfulness. As each day goes by, we again are reminded of the importance of being grace-oriented, remembering that everything comes from Your grace and it depends on who and what You are, not who and what we are. We're so thankful for that and for the great things You have revealed in Your Word. We pray that You will help us to be enlightened this evening by Your Word, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get started on 1 Thessalonians, there's one little blurb that I noted in the New American Magazine. It is the... What issue is this? This is the uh, well March issue. March 1st issue. And it looks like our country finally did something right. Can you believe it? I mean, you need to perk up your ears because I don't say this too often when they do something right because it's very seldom they do anything right. But there was a family in Germany that was trying to rear their children properly and homeschool their children. And it's not legal to do that in Germany. And so they tried to bypass that And in doing so, they incurred a fine of $17,850 was their fine. And they were repeatedly threatened by school and government officials until the police officers, without written orders, forcibly removed the children from their home and escorted them to the government school. And that's when they uh, were able to extract their children. They came to the U.S. looking for asylum. And we gave it to them. So that is, that's good news. I just hope that that trend continues. We have a large number of homeschoolers in our church. And I, I applaud all those homeschoolers. I think if you're able to do it, uh, that, that's the route to go. Not everyone are, is able to do it, but certainly something that we would aspire to. Let's open our Bibles now to First Thessalonians chapter 1. I was on the Libronics Bible software today and I got a few of the a few pictures that might be interesting with regards to Thessalonica. This is a um, a picture of Thessalonica. And uh, can you 
dim the lights, George or Jenny, someone. Uh, this is kind of a fairly light picture. You can't see it all that well. I don't know if you can tell, but this is a, a tall ship right here. You know, the one that had the sails. So I don't know when this was taken. It looked like it might be a very old picture. But it kind of gives you the terrain of the area around Thessalonica. And they said this is a port here. And what, one thing that caught my eye are these spires here. Did you notice those? Those look, look like, what do they call them, minarets? Minarets, where this is where the Muslims go up and they do all their shouting and yelling and so-called praying and so forth. I would hate to be in a Muslim nation. How would you wake up? I don't know when they do it, 6 o'clock in the morning or 7, they say, hey, yeah, yeah, and they go all in. I believe I'd be looking for my shotgun. But uh, so obviously, if those are those Muslim spars, then uh, it would have to be after the Muslims took over. And then there's one other one here. This is uh, just a concept of uh, Paul teaching the Thessalonians. And these appear to be, if I had to guess, I would say these guys here are probably Jews rather than Gentiles. Notice they all look the same. And they have, I mean, their dress is the same. They all have the same beards and so forth. And I don't think the Gentiles were that uniform. So anyway, before we got started, I wanted to show you those two. I'm going to have some more to show you after a while. <clears throat> Let's begin reading on the second verse that will kind of bring us back up to speed. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, as you know, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you should have some kind of notation of circle around that verse and maybe a notation that says common grace to the side of that. Remember when we were studying common grace, this is a verse that substantiates the fact that when a person hears the gospel, it's not the one that's giving the gospel. It doesn't matter how eloquent or how a fervent a person may be when giving the gospel, the fact is that you have a power, including the Holy Spirit here, who makes it clear. In other words, when someone hears the gospel, it is spiritual phenomenon, and it's going to a spiritually dead person. So something has to take place for them to make it, uh, for them to understand it. And so here we have the power and the Holy Spirit that makes it clear and lucid, perspicuous to an unbeliever. Verse 6, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation 
and with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Now, that's where we ended last time. That's where we begin tonight. I want to put these notes up on the board so you can look at them as you go. Carrie sends out these notes a little before Bible class so you can print them out before you get here if you are so inclined. We've already gone over most of this verse. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. And we recognize that that is a perfect tense. It's a verb and it's a perfect passive indicative. What did I say we do when we see a perfect tense? We slow down. The author is trying to tell you something there. And this is a perfect passive. It's my, one of my favorites. The passive voice means that a, a verb in the perfect passive, and of course in the indicative mood, means the mood of reality, means something happened in the past. And it was completed in the past, but the results go on and on. So the word of the Lord that had sounded forth from the Thessalonians, it was completed in the past, but the results go, what did I say? All the way into the present, in the now. One reason is because it's part of the word of God that lives and abides forever. So now we benefit from the word going out from the Thessalonian believers. And then we recognize that, excuse me, our responsibility as believers in getting the Word out, getting the truth out, especially the Gospel. And we went to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 20. Here it is on the board. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is the ministry of reconciliation? It's the Gospel, isn't it? He gave it to us. He gave it to us for what purpose? To give to others. So we receive the gospel, and now it's our responsibility to pass it on to others. This is what the Thessalonians did, and the Apostle Paul is making a big deal about this. They didn't just hear it and believe it and then just sit on it. They gave it to others in the same fashion in which they received it, as we'll see as we go through the next couple of verses. Verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's very interesting there, isn't it? God doesn't doesn't count anyone's trespasses against them in the sense of condemning them to hell for their sins. And why is that? Because Christ paid for the sins of all mankind. Doctrine of unlimited atonement. So he did not count their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So now we have a little stronger word. First time he gave the word of reconciliation. Now he committed to us the word of reconciliation. That would be the gospel. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. Now before I go on, right underneath here, you can see the word for Entreating is the, in the Greek is parakaleo. It's a compound word, and it means the, the para uh, means 
uh, to the side, and kaleo means to call. So it means to help, comfort, or encourage. So when you give someone the gospel, you are encouraging them. You're helping them. And that's what it means by entreating. God is entreating. He is helping. He is comforting. He is encouraging the whole world through who? Through us as we give the gospel. Because, you see, the world is in darkness and it has no hope. And we're giving them hope when we give them the gospel. So it says, we beg, and I don't like that translation. It should be, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So the Thessalonians were doing it correctly. They received the word and then they gave the word to others. We're going to see in the next verse to what extent they did this. They did it to a, to a large extent. They were really out there giving the gospel and the truth to others. And then it says, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth. <clears throat> Excuse me. Here we have another perfect tense. Go forth is ex erco. And that's E-X-E-R-C-H-O. That should be ex erco. And it's a perfect active indicative. So it went out. The word that they gave, the gospel and truth, went out. And that means it was completely completed. They, they finished the task. But the results go on and on right into the present. So we have another perfect tense there. We might say that that is what? They, people were receiving blessings by association. If you knew a convert from Thessalonica, chances were heavy that they were going to give you the gospel. And if you believed, then, they, then your job would be to what? Give the gospels to others, and then those would give it to others. And then you have great national impact. Okay. Um, that's, uh, this is where we were supposed to start today, I guess. I did a little review. <clears throat> Very important principle. Don't ever underestimate the impact that occurs when you teach someone Bible doctrine. Don't underestimate it because the Bible is telling us, based on historical accounts, that what the Thessalonians did by imparting truth, Bible doctrine to others, uh, what did they say in Acts chapter 16? They turned the world upside down with the truth that they were giving. The gospel was trumpeted out to the world from Thessalonica, but the Thessalonians were not tooting their own horn about what they did. God caused it to be heard all over the world. In other words, they weren't, they weren't depending on their own prowess, on their own ability. Never is the case. Even when you give the gospel, if, if you give it clearly, you give it correctly, you give it with a great dogmatism, you do everything right. There's no guarantee that the person is going to accept it because it doesn't depend on you, does it? It depends on the Lord. And the, and it, the, the reason that it went out was because it was God's will that it be uh, covered the earth at that time, or at least the known world. Then we have Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be which goeth forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So anytime you are imparting 
knowledge, truth, doctrine to others, you can be assured that it wasn't in vain because God has a purpose and a reason behind it. And it will accomplish what His desire is. Isn't that a great encouragement to us? That helps us to not be discouraged when we give biblical truths to people that falls on deaf ears. I think about Noah. Noah had to had to be has such thick skin. I can't believe the rejection that he got. How would you like to preach 120 years and not have a convert? That would be a bummer, right? I mean, they didn't have all the drugs to get him out of depression. I don't think he was in depression. I think he was, it appears, he was just doing his job. The conference I went to this past week in Houston, the Grace Seminary, I mean, the Schaefer Seminary and Pastors Conference, Dr. John Wickham did a great paper on Noah's Ark. I told you a little bit about it. But I ordered the DVDs, and you want to make sure to get that one. Tremendous. Now, the next phrase, so that we have no need to say anything. Now, this is the one that should have caught your eye. This is Paul saying, the word went out to such an extent, we don't need to say anything. Boy, if it, I, I wish it was that way here. I wish that every time we go out and we try to give the gospel to somebody, it says, too late. One of the brethren already came by and gave me the gospel, and I accepted Jesus Christ. Now, I'm looking for someone. Wouldn't that be great? How often does that happen? Not very much. Most people have no idea of what this life is all about. The word had spread to such an extent that everywhere Paul and his companions went, they found believers who had heard the gospel from the Thessalonians or from their converts. What it amounts to was Paul was the spiritual granddad and great-granddad to a lot of people he came in contact with and didn't even know it until after he started talking to them. Now, that's great, isn't it? I mean, the gospel, the Word of God, is alive and powerful. We don't ever want to discount that or doubt it. And they were just giving the gospel. That's all they were doing. That's all God requires of us is to give the gospel when we have opportunity and give it right. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. We go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Now, I always give you the verses in the, uh, from the Greek with regards to the length of the sentence because sometimes the English will cut the sentences in pieces. And that's unfortunate because a sentence is the basic unit of thought and you want, to, you want to go through that whole sentence to get that whole thought. But today, most people can't think and concentrate on a string of words for very long and so they'll cut it into pieces so that we're able to understand it better. But this is right from the Greek as far as this sentence is concerned. And it starts with, for they themselves, I'm going to read it without the little uh, bracket notes first. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living God, a living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who delivers us 
from the wrath to come. There is a lot in that sentence, and I doubt that we'll even get to the end of verse 9 tonight because we like to sift it to the bottom and make sure that we don't leave anything, any stone unturned with regards to its meaning. So we take it a phrase at a time, and we start with, for they themselves. This refers to the converts of the Thessalonian believers. So it's talking about the people that Paul was consistently uh, coming into contact with as he continued to travel, and they were converts. They weren't people that, that he had anything to do with. The converts were from Thessalonia were given all the, 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 the gospel out. And they, they would have uh, traders that would come in, both by land and sea, and they would give them the gospel, and then they would get, uh, carry the message out. And then you have the next phrase. It says, for they themselves report about us. Now, here you have the, the word, the Greek word for report is angelio, that's A-P-A-N-G-E-L-L-O. And it's, a, of course, a verb. It's a present active indicative, and it would be better translated, which I have up here in, this, in the brackets, for they themselves, which would be the Thessalonian converts, report, or really should be keep on reporting. They just didn't do it one time. They continued to do this. He, Paul kept receiving reports from the converts, excuse me, the, the believers from Thessalonica, had given the gospel to. So this word, opangelo, means to tell, to declare, announce, to bring a message from someone. So they were bringing a message from the believers in Thessalonica, and they were reporting about something. Well, what was their report? We see this in the next phrase. They were reporting about, about us, what kind of reception we had with you. Now, this is hard. it's hard to translate this from the Greek into the English, because, and this is a fair job, but you can miss out on a little bit of it. The word for reception here is eis-odos. That's E-I-S-O-D-O-S, or probably should be better translated ace-odos. It's a verb. It's the aorist active indicative. So it's from a compound, it's a compound word from ace, E-I-S, which means into, and hados, which means way. So it, here it means a way into a relationship with the Thessalonian believers. So what they were doing were that they were telling Paul about their relationship and how they were, they entered into the relationship uh, with the Thessalonians, but not only that, they were relating to Paul what the Thessalonians had told them about Paul's first encounter with them when Paul was ushered into a relationship with the Thessalonians. Isn't that neat? Paul was hearing stories from strangers about what happened when he first came to Thessalonians. Well, that's pretty neat. That means they were doing their job. But it's even more important than that, as we'll see. So the new converts were relating the story of how Paul and his companions went into Thessalonica and led the people to the Lord. The new converts were using the same method Paul used to convert the Thessalonians who converted them. That's what they were telling them about. The best way to train a new convert how to witness to others is to show them how you witness to them. And so when Paul went in, 
and witnessed to the Thessalonians originally. They remembered it. They used the same technique. They would even tell the, the, their new converts, well, this is how Paul did it. He came in and he approached me this way, uh, probably asking questions. You know, that's one of the best ways to give the gospel, if you'll remember. You just don't want to go up there and have a canned speech. The first thing you want to do when you witness to somebody is what? Find out what their background is. Are they religious? Do they go to church all the time? But just because they go to church, of course, doesn't mean that they're saved. But it means that you will give them the gospel in a different way than someone who has no religious background whatsoever. And how do you find these things out? You ask them questions. And so when you ask them questions, you find out where they itch. So when you talk to them, you can scratch where they itch. But most people forget about that. They get nervous. They're on the front line. And the first thing they say is, have you had a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And the person has no... They might not even know who Jesus Christ is. It might be a Hindu or a Muslim that just... They've heard the name, but they really don't know anything about it. So the best thing to do is ask some questions. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you all tonight. This just came to me, but I'm going to challenge you. This is going to be a little more interactive right now. Let's say that you were... Paul, you were going into Thessalonica, and there you had Jews, you had Gentiles, which were pagans. So you had all types of people. And you go up to someone, you say, how do you do? How are you doing this morning? Well, I'm doing fine. And you take it from there. How would you, what, what would be something to get the ball rolling with regards to finding out what their background is so that you can give them the gospel in a way that's going to be most effective? What might you ask them? Oh. I said ask. I didn't mean to do that. But you do need to do that. You need to ask something. What would you ask? Come on, somebody raise your hand and tell me. What? Okay, if you were to die today, where would you go? They'd probably say in the ground. Then what? <laughs> but that, that's, you know, that, that's one way. What's some more? What's some other ideas? Yeah. Don't have to be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. That's, that's great. Now, let me ask you a question. What would you do if he said no? If he said, would you like to hear about the grace, great grace trade-out? What, and he said, no, I'm not interested. What would you do? No, I know the guy you did. <laughs> I know. Probably the great majority of the time, they are going to ask, uh, say yes. I mean, when you ask somebody something that they don't know, they're, if nothing else, they're curious and they want to know. What if he said no? What would you do? What would any of you do? <laughs> there you go. You could ask him why not. And if he keeps being more or less belligerent, he's just not, not 
showing you that he's, he doesn't want to talk about... Sometimes I don't want to talk about religion. I don't think it's right to confront people about religion or something. You say, okay, you know, have a nice day. Hope it's not too hot for you today. <laughs> I don't know, but you know, you can't push it. Yeah, you could do that. I mean, but there's another one that I'm thinking of that I had in my mind that none of you have said yet. These both of those were good, by the way. Come on, y'all think. Y'all should have some right at the at the at the tip of your tongue. Right? Right. That's that's good. Yeah, but I'm I'm off of this guy now, okay? Well, that was good, but I'm on to somebody else now. I want to get some other, another tack. That was really good, though, because you ask a question that's challenging nine times out of ten, they're going to say, okay, what is it? And then when you – here's something I think that's part, important, though. Once you give them that information, you need to – don't rattle on. Stop and listen because they might have a question. A lot of times if people keep rattling on, just spilling their guts, all the doctrines they know, they forgot about what was really important back at the start. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When was the last time an idol spoke to you? When was the last time an idol um, actually did anything? I mean, you can you don't be sarcastic, but, you know, challenging. What's some more? Yeah. Have you heard the... Oh, that's good. <laughs> Who's going to say, no, I don't really want to know about the good news? I mean, that is very challenging, the, the good news. Yes, ma'am. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah? Uh, they, yeah. You need to put it in a question form, though. You know, uh, have you heard, uh, or what do you think about uh, heaven and hell? You ever heard those terms? What's, what's with that? What, what's you got, huh? See, that's what I was thinking. That's because, you know, we're one, so we think of it. That's what I've done with people that I come in contact around. Um, First of all, I usually say, oh, are you from around here? You know, that's that's innocuous. That's that's nothing threatening about that. And they'll say, well, yeah, I I go. It doesn't matter what they say because my next question is going to be the same. And then I'll ask them, is there any good churches there? And I can tell by their response. Uh, well, I don't know. I don't really go to church. And you know what? Some of the, let me tell you something. Out of everything that you can say, this is a, I learned this in sales training, but it works great here also. One of the most powerful things you can say is if you ask someone, uh, are, are there any good churches around here? And they say, oh, you know, I really don't know. I, I really don't go to church. One of the best responses to that is, oh, It, the ball's in his court then. He'll realize that. You didn't ask him anything. You just say, oh. And he's going to, usually, he or she will respond. Well, yeah, you know, those churches, all they want is your money. And they're trying to get you to work and do things you really want, don't want to do. And you know how you can really surprise them? Agree with them. Because what they're saying is true. You say, you know, you're right. That, <laughs> absolutely Most of the churches I've been into, 
fit that to a T. And they're a bunch of hypocrites, just like you say. However, did you hear about that church out on 290? <laughs> That's good. The juices are flowing. You've got to think about these things. I mean, you, you can't think of them ahead of time, have them a, a canned speech, but sometimes something will happen and you both see it and you comment on it and then you know, the next thing you know, you're trying to take advantage of an opportunity. Sometimes you might pray, but when someone is coming over to fix your refrigerator, you say, Lord, I don't know who this is, anything about them, but give me the opportunity and the wisdom to give this person the gospel and see what happens. Something will happen. If you just wait for that opportunity, it will be there. And that's what those Thessalonians were doing. I would love to sit down in that group of, Thess- of, of the Thessalonian believers and just go one by one. Well, you, uh, you, you must have had some converse. There's, there's just like ants around here. Well, how, did you, how did you break the ice? How did you get started? You see, that's what they were imparting to Paul. And they were repeating to Paul the exact same way that he did it. And that's the best way to do it. I think the hardest thing is breaking the ice, I think. It just how to because you don't want to make it look contrived, do you? You don't want it to look phony. And when you're asking questions, uh, <clears throat> this is something else that I found. If you're talking to someone, they say, "Oh, well, I'm a Jehovah Witness." Really? Well, what is that about? And they'll start talking. You know, they'll start telling you something about what their belief system is. And you can say, "Well, what is what are their beliefs with regards to being saved?" If you're talking to a Jehovah Witness, do not do this. Do not ask them anything about heaven because then they're going to go on this long diatribe that there is no heaven, everybody's going to be on earth and all this. And you don't want to go there and you don't need to. Just ask them what does a person need to do to be saved. And you know what they're going to say? Believe in Jesus Christ. They believe that. And you say, great. And that's it? And you know what the answer is next? Well, no, you've got, to be, you've got to be good. You've got to do good works and so forth. And you know what the best response to that is? Oh, where did you get that idea? Did you get it from the Bible? Where? Wouldn't that be a good idea? Just throwing some things out there for us to think about because that's what these converts were doing. So the best way to train a new convert is to witness to others and show them how you witness to them. You had any? Let me put it this way. I assume that we're all believers here. Someone had to break the ice with you in order to give you the gospel, didn't they? They had to bring it up. Somehow it had to happen. Unless, not necessarily, unless you're like Ty Furlow. Y'all don't know Ty. You know how he was saved? He read the Bible. He read the Bible and got saved from the Bible. And that's possible, but we're talking about evangelism here right now. So he says, and you turn to God from idols. And the word turned here is epistrepho, E-P-I-S-T-R-E-P-H-O. It's a verb, aorist, active, indicative. So it happened at a point of time. They did it, active voice, indicative mood, reality. It means to turn oneself upon or toward, to turn to the service and worship of the true God. It means to turn from something to something. 
In other words, you have to turn. You're already involved with something. You have to turn uh, to something else. So they turned from idols to the living God. Something had to happen before they made that turn. What is it? Oh, I was going to have that where you couldn't see it. Did y'all see it? Did you see the answer? Oh, y'all are reading. Y'all are reading ahead. Y'all are supposed to stay with me. I'm going to turn this thing off. There you go. That'll cure you. Okay, now, something had to happen first before they made that turn. What did they have to do? See, they, have, they, were, they were engaged. Most of these were pagans. There were some Jews there, but mostly pagans. And they were worshiping idols. So it, the Bible says that they turned to God from idols. And I'm saying before they, they turned to God from idols, what had to take place first? Yeah, they had to believe the gospel. They had to change their mind, didn't they? Metanoeo. Most of y'all are familiar with that word. M-E-T-A-N-O-E-O. It means simply to change your mind. So they had to change their mind about Christ first, and then they turned from idols. Now, J. Vernon McGee made an interesting point in Through the Bible with J. Vernon McGee. Uh, <laughs> McGee. Anybody ever uh, had any contact with it? I like J. Vernon McGee. He's a neat guy. Well, he was a neat guy. He's, he's with the Lord now. But he made a very interesting uh, point here. He pointed out that Paul said they turned to God from idols. They did not turn from idols to God. Well, you're just, you're just splitting hair. Yeah, I am. But it's important to note that there is a difference. I'll turn this back on if y'all won't read ahead. <clears throat> the point is, Paul did not go in denouncing idols or give a series of messages on the evil of idolatry. He didn't have to. He simply praised Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He didn't make a big deal about what they were doing. He just gave them the gospel. And then we have in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined, determined to know nothing about you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the heart of the gospel. So you don't want to get engaged in any arguments with an unbeliever about what they're doing or how they're doing it. You just hammer away that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Went to the cross for your sins and my sins, all man's sins. He died, resurrected on the third day, and offers eternal life to anyone who would accept Him and Him alone for it. That's it. That's what you want to concentrate on. They say, yeah, but what about tongues? I don't care about tongues. My tongue is telling you this. You need to listen to what this tongue is saying for just a few moments because your entire eternal destiny depends on it. Something along those lines. One must turn from... Here's the one thing that you do have to do, though. This is the, the only thing that is absolutely necessary for you to do, to turn from something. This only one thing before you are going to be saved. Here it is. One must turn from dependence on his own works to dependence on Christ and His work in order to receive the free gift of eternal life. 
That's the only thing you have to turn from if you want to put it in those terms. Turning from something. Turning from dependence on your own self and your own works. That's the only thing. Listen to that. Only, one and only thing that you have to turn from is a belief in your own works to be saved. However, the dependence on Christ comes first. It is never the other way around. First of all, you believe in Jesus Christ. You recognize that He is the Savior. And once you do that, you see, then, or really I say once you do it, in understanding that actually, it means that you have changed your mind about trusting in your own work. Now I'm going to give you some challenging questions here in a moment. No one has ever had to give up anything or turn from anything in order to be saved. Period. How about that? Huh? Is that good news to the unbeliever? Do you know how many people think Christians are a bunch of fuddy-duddies? And they don't want to be a Christian because they love their beer. And if they have to give up beer, they just soon not be a Christian. They see a bunch of hypocrites and they think, well, I have to give up smoking, I have to give up drinking, I have to give up things that I really like to do. And the good news is, you don't, do you? I challenge any of you to show me something other than depending upon your own good works that you have to change, you have to turn away from in order to be saved. You tell me. Back it up with Scripture. It's not there. It's true that idol worshipers would probably stop worshiping idols after they accepted Christ, but never would it be required before they accepted Christ. See, that's the, that's the confusion. People think, if I'm going to be saved, I have to clean up my act. I have to start doing things, certain things, and stop doing other things. Is that true? Absolutely not. Now, some allege that if a man doesn't turn from his sin... It is because he hasn't turned to Christ. You ever heard that? Some people think that they can judge your eternal status, whether you're saved or not, by your behavior. And I wrote a booklet back there called, Can You Tell? Can you tell if a person is saved by their behavior? And I can take you to a lot of examples in the Bible of believers who would just nearly would embarrass hell for what they did. Let's go to 1 Samuel and read about David. Uh, first and 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, David really gets cranked up. So, they allege that if a man doesn't turn from his sin, it's because he hasn't turned to Christ. Now, my question is, is that true? No. What do you think? Are you thinking? People get confused when they read the Bible and see the commands to believe uh, to believers to straighten up their behavior and stop allowing sin to control their lives. They think the commands are required of unbelievers to gain salvation or to believers to maintain their salvation, which neither one is true, is it? Is it possible for a drunk to truly be saved? if he keeps on drinking after he claims he's accepted the gospel? I vote yes. Huh? What about if a homosexual continues to have sex with other men after he 
professor to be a Christian. Is that possible? I can take you to a number of websites of Christian websites that will allege that, not allege, they dogmatically state that if you're a homosexual, you're going to hell. Of course, that's not true. If, you're a, if you were a homosexual or lesbian, whatever you were beforehand, and you believe in Jesus Christ, what are you going to be the moment after you believed in Christ? What would you be? What else? What else would you be? I can't hear you. You'd be a born-again homosexual, wouldn't you? Huh? Is that not true? Oh, it's distasteful, isn't it? Oh, I've had people who throw rocks at me for saying things like that. Did his predilection and his desire to be in this abhorrent behavior miraculously change the moment that he believed in Jesus Christ? Now, a lot of things happen. I've got a part on, the web, on our website that says 40 things. 40 things. And at least 40 things happen the moment that a person believes in Jesus Christ. But they're all wrought by God. Not what happens to you. I mean, you're still the same person. But a lot of things happen. I'm not trying to discount what happens. But even if a homosexual believes in Jesus Christ, he has received eternal life, he has received the imputation of God's own righteousness, and these, these things are irrevocable. But he's still a homosexual. Now, what happens after that depends on his volition. He may have to struggle. Now, there I have heard pe- accounts of people who say who said, I was addicted to... Uh, whiskey or drugs or whatever and when I believed in Jesus Christ I never had another desire for it. Maybe that's true. But it's not universally true. Because I know believers, I mean people who believed in Jesus Christ and whatever they were struggling with before they were saved, they were still struggling with it after they were saved. Yes, yes, yes. That's true. Well, you, that's a good point. Now, I don't want to. I don't want to go to an extreme to to where you you think that nothing. It doesn't make any difference. I'm not saying that. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but if you are a, a born again, if the, in the scenario that I gave you, you would be a born again homosexual, indwelt by the Holy Spirit that is was was carnal. And now has a decision to make, is he going to remain carnal or not? Just because you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you stop sinning, does it? Now, what he does have, though, this is the, something that needs to be emphasized here, is that since he is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit the moment that he believes in Jesus Christ, he now has something he didn't have before couple of things. What is one of the things he now has? I'm not talking about eternal life and salvation. I'm talking about something that he didn't even exist beforehand. He has a human spirit now, which is his ability to have a relationship with God. And he also has the Holy Spirit, like you said, indwelling. And that means that he now has 
has a choice. Before, he was enslaved to his old sin nature. He could only produce two things, human good and sin. But as a believer now, the absolute power of the old sin nature has been broken. And now, with the help of the Holy Spirit, he can choose not to sin and carry it out. He didn't have that before. And he even has the ability to produce divine good, which he didn't have before. But some people, you know, there's one thing to be grace-oriented. And I've talked to believers before who said they were grace-oriented, but they would want to take me to task over what I'm telling you right now. But we have to go by the Word. Listen, there's nobody here that thinks that homosexuality is more repugnant than I do. It's, it's, it's a, Well, in the Old Testament, they would execute people caught in that kind of activity. But when it comes to the grace of God, you don't deserve it any more than a homosexual who believes in Jesus Christ deserves to be forgiven. So we have to keep this straight. Yes, Pete. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Thus he needs to grow up. That's true. What we have to what we have to realize is that a person is not in any way deserving of salvation. And the difference is that here's the difference: the person went from being condemned to no condemnation, and you can't see that. I can't see. There's not a, a a little verse hovering over your head with an arrow pointing down to your head saying, there's therefore now no condemnation to he who is in Christ Jesus. If you believe in Jesus Christ, are you in Christ? Why? What is the mechanic that puts you there? Baptism of the Holy Spirit. And where would you go for a verse that would speak of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? First Corinthians twelve thirteen is one of the better ones. Yeah. Okay. So these are things that we have to really understand. That the I said that they turned to God from idols. If it was turned around, then you'd have a problem here. You don't have to turn from anything in order to be saved. And even after you are saved, the proof of your salvation is not in your behavior. You know where you can tell more by what a person says whether they whether they're a believer or not than what they do. Well, I'm I'm really I ought to stop here because I was going to open up another box bag of worms here. Here's, you, I tell you what, I'm going to just give you this, and you think about it, and we'll start here next time. But it, it goes a little deeper. What about an idol worshiper who continues to worship idols? 
I mean, if he was an idol worship before he believed in Jesus Christ. He believed in Jesus Christ and continued to worship idols. Would that be proof positive that he really didn't have, he really wasn't saved to begin with? He didn't have the right kind of faith or he didn't have enough faith? Is that what it is? Most of the population would level that accusation against him. Or here's one, here's the one you really have to, have to look at. What if a person was a Muslim before he accepted the gospel and then went back to Islam? Surely that would undo it, huh? Surely it would prove that he really wasn't saved to begin with. Right? What else do I have under here? Yeah. Oop, I can't just show that. I'm going to turn this off. I'm giving it. <laughs> okay. Well, some of you have the notes anyway. What if he was a Buddhist or a Hindu? And he professed Christ that he went to a Billy Graham crusade and he, he accepted the gospel and he went back to his family. His family gave him so much hell he couldn't stand it and says, okay, get the prayer rug out. I'm going to get down and say hello to Allah or whatever they do. Um, what about him? Most of you know the answer already. And the ones of you that have the notes know the answer biblically. But I'm challenging you, can you go in the Bible and prove whether a person like that is truly saved or whether they are not? That's where we're going to start Thursday night. Yes. Yes. Come here. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We've got to get you on here. There you go. Put it close to your mouth. If we have any doubts about what you just said... What was the purpose of writing the, the First Corinthian church? Yeah. They had every kind of a problem in that church. They had become believers, but they had their old garbage. They were still dragging along with them. And the letter is to, written to straighten them out in their walk in time. You know what verse, said, what, what verse 2 says? It's written to those who have been sanctified. They already had positional sanctification. They were believers. And they were the most rowdy. Uh, they had ever sin you can think of going on, including incest that they were accepting. And yet they are called uh, beloved, and they're called being. They had been sanctified in Christ Jesus. But we're going to look at these. I want you to have these down pat because this epistrepho to turn. Nothing has to be turned from before you turn to Christ. That's why you don't make an issue when you're giving the gospel over anything that anyone is doing. You give them Christ and Him crucified. And when they get that, they'll do their own turn. You don't make anything other than that the issue. Now let's close. Father, thank You for this time You've given us to fellowship in Your Word this evening. We pray that You will help us think about these things, look for opportunities so that we can give the good news, the great news, the best news to a dying and dark world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.